In Genesis chapter 6, I want to read a portion and then uh, share, relate uh, uh, an experience a little bit. Genesis chapter 6, it says that Enoch, it says that uh, Enoch, uh, he lived to be 300, I think it was 360 something years old. And he was the, uh, the father of Methuselah. And Methuselah was the one that lived to be really, really old. 900 and I believe 69 years old. And uh, can you just imagine? Uh, I mean, that's hard to imagine even what he looked like at that almost a thousand years old. But all of the experiences that, that he had had. But Enoch was his father. And it says that Enoch walked with God. It says that uh, that that'd be a really great testimony about someone when they finish their course or in their journey that they they walked with God. I mean that that says a whole lot about the life of Enoch that he walked with God. But something happened to Enoch that rarely happens to folks. Enoch, from what we can see, he didn't experience death like we experience death. This is how it's described. It says, Enoch walked with God, and then it just simply says, and he was not. And then it says, for God took him. Now, that's a unique experience. I'm not really excited about the dying process. It just suit me fine if the Lord chose to take me on and, and I could avoid that experience. I'm looking forward to being with the Lord. But as far as the, the, the dying process, I'm not really uh, anxious about that. Enoch did not experience that. It says Enoch walked with God. And then it just says, and he was gone. He was not for God took him share with you a little bit of an experience. Our dear brother, friend, longtime friend, uh, John Taylor, who has visited here at Mount Carmel uh, upon a couple of occasions, uh, Southampton even more because of the proximity uh, from New York City, just suddenly died this last week. He had taken a couple of falls, several hard falls, and one left a really bad place on his forehead. The last fall, he injured his hip, and he kept going back to the doctor thinking that maybe he had fractured or, or cracked his hip, but, and he could just barely get around, but they ran CAT scans, x-rays, and couldn't find uh, a fracture with his hip, and he was in a tremendous amount of pain. And on, uh, I'd been, I'd talked to him the week before, and um, then got a phone call this last week, I think it was on uh, Tuesday, the 26th, that uh, he just died. Apparently had a heart attack, and when he was found, was unable to, was not responsive, and was unable to be revived. We're all gonna, unless we're blessed like Enoch and like Elijah, we're all gonna die. Some folks, sadly, suffer for years and linger for years. And some folks, the Lord takes immediately. It's a little bit of a shock. It just uh, less about a month ago, we were in New York. John and Gabrielle were there, several folks here. Brother Phil said he told Brother John, I'll see you next month. Brother John always would say, Looking forward to it. We'll see you next month. And this time was a little bit different. He said, I hope so. <clears throat> Share with you a little bit about Brother John. I was blessed to be his mother's pastor. She was a wonderful sister. She's the one that sings the touch of his gentle hand that's on this tape that we have back there, CD. Also, the 11th song, John sings, Do Not I Love Thee. He sings it solo. He was 21 years old when he sang this hymn. 
And he was able to continue singing like that into his mid-70s. But she was a wonderful sister, a great encouragement in my early years in the ministry. And then to move to, John moved to New York, and he moved to New York about 30-something years ago with the uh, great desire to be an actor. He said he realized years later that that was not going to be his lot, and so he ended up, even with a degree, he ended up being a supervisor for seven apartment buildings and continued in that role, and that allowed him to live in New York City and still do some uh, other acting skits along the way. But we really got to know John about eight years ago when we started having services in New York, and he was one of the reasons that uh, the folks had a desire to go up there, and many of you have been up there. Over the last eight years, until the last service two weeks ago, John had never missed a single service. John made all the arrangements. He would call and reserve a room. That's not an easy thing to do in New York City. He worked all the details out, made all the arrangements. He was always there. And one interesting thing about Brother John is he always transported the songbooks, about 20, 25 songbooks. And he used a great big Samsonite suitcase that would roll. So you'd see John walking through the streets of New York pulling a burgundy suitcase, great big burgundy suitcase full of 25 hymn books. And he would get there and he had such a smile on his face and with such zeal and enthusiasm. And he would oftentimes be the last one to leave after we'd make a mess eating Chick-fil-A sandwiches. He would be there sweeping up the mess and cleaning up the room and folding up the chairs. And that was his ministry. When I heard the report that John had died, it was, I was really, really sad the, the day that I heard the report on the 26th. I tried to sit down and write some thank you cards for all the, the cards and gifts that I'd been given, and I just couldn't put it together. And just was overtaken with, with sorrow because it had changed so much. The whole dynamic of the New York meeting. When Asa and Carla left here, that's about 10% of the congregation here at Mount Carmel. Well, John's about 10% of the congregation in New York. But then the next day, all of a sudden, God blessed me with something that was real special. Occasionally, John would lead singing. And after he would lead singing... With his enthusiasm, with his expressive voice, he would start telling us. We, I thought of it when Sister Tracy called out 370, what a day that will be. I could just almost see him leading that because when he led that song, he would finish it by saying, it's real. And with enthusiasm, he'd say, I'm looking forward to that day. And he said, we're going to see Jesus Christ in that day. And it's going to be forever. And he would get so excited and express it that all of a sudden I realized that he's experiencing what he was telling us about all those times. And it helped me a whole lot in dealing Amen. with the passing of Brother John. We'll miss him a lot. I will tell you that his brother and sister-in-law, his brother, Elder Tom Taylor, was scheduled to come this next week. They were coming to check on John because they could tell that he was declining over the phone. Uh, he's still coming. This time he's coming to clean his apartment out. Instead of his wife coming, his other brother, Joe Taylor, is coming. And they're going to be there Friday night for a fellowship at the Hepzibah House, and they'll be there Saturday for the worship service. And so Saturday morning, going to have a memorial service for the first portion of the service. And then his brother, Tom Taylor, will preach to us at the meeting. So pray for that service if there's uh, any that desire to go and, and uh, you might let us know. And if we can uh, uh, make arrangements transportation wise, uh, we may be able to do that. Maybe uh, through a van, let myself or Brother Justice even know, Brother Danny, and we'll try to see if that's an option to, to be able to go. But you can go and encourage the folks in New York and you can go and encourage Tom and Joe Taylor who had not didn't have the blessing of witnessing the spiritual ministry that John had with the folks up there over the last eight years. 
So pray for that. Uh, pray for that weekend, even if you're not able to go. Going to ask Elder Aquino to uh, open the preaching service here in just a minute, and then I'll follow, and uh, we'll ask Brother Andrew Franklin to lead us in prayer before we uh, change the order of service. Before, uh, a- after Andrew leads us in prayer, let's sing 365 in memory of uh, Brother Tom Reeves' sister. Uh, Brother Andrew, if you would lead us in prayer, please. Heavenly Father, we come to you this morning thankful for another day, another opportunity to assemble together into your house and to worship you. We ask that you would continue to be in this service as we uh, as we preaching, that you would uh, be with Elder Aquino and Elder Boyd as they stand before us, and that you would be with each one of us as we receive the message. We ask you to be with those that are, are missing here this morning, those that are unable to be here for uh, sickness or whatever the reason is, we know that you know exactly what it is that they stand in need of, and you have the power to grant them those needs. And we ask you to be with each one of them in a special way, and with all of those whom prayer has been requested, those that are mourning the loss of loved ones, we ask you to be with them and their families in a, in a special way. Hold them up in this difficult uh, time. Um, and these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. If you care to stand, we'll sing the first and fourth verse and the chorus uh, repeat on the fourth. First and fourth and then the chorus. If there's Tristan and any of the other brothers that would like to help lead uh, this song, uh, we'll come up with him. Uh, one, 365, one and four. One and four. And repeat on the chorus. And let this people saddened to hear about Brother John and uh, don't have the acquaintance with him as Brother Stephen does, but um, we know that he was a pillar up there at the fellowship in New York and they will certainly miss him and I pray that his memorial service will uh, live up to his faith and to his wondrous uh, testimony and witness to a living Lord Jesus. Uh, He was the kind of man that I believed had vision, had spiritual vision. He could see beyond the pale of sin and sadness. He rejoiced and he embraced. And, uh, you know, so often, you and I, we just travel through this little ground of sin and sorrow. And we kind of feel in the darkness. we, We grope looking for something because we're so blind. You know, Paul prayed that the eyes of our understanding would be opened so that we could see the real things. And occasionally as we walk through this little ground of sin and sorrow, we meet up with people who have tremendous vision. They see things. John was such a person. 
I invite your attention for a few moments as we think about that when the Gospel of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, chapter 8. And uh, what I plan to do here then to keep me on track is just share a few things about this very short set of verses. And when I read them, I'll sit down. But let me just comment on them first. Because in this case, it may do us well to think about it first. And these particular scriptures are found in verses 20 through through 26. It's a very unique portion of scripture. Uh, There's a lot of scriptures in the Bible that at first glance we find a little bit unique. We don't quite understand them. In fact, they seem to be at odds with what normally may take place in other portions of the Bible. And in this particular case, we have a blind man. We have a blind man who others brought to the Lord Jesus Christ in a town called Bethsaida, which is, by interpretation, the house of fish. It was situated right there on the north side of the Sea of Galilee, right near the Jordan. So I'm sure there was plenty to eat on occasions when people visited Bethsaida. These particular people brought whoever they were. We don't know who they were, but it reminds me of many of God's children who bring others to church. They bring the blind. They bring the maim, the brokenhearted, those who are low and despondent in spirit. There's no better blessing that you can do while in this world than to seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness. And in doing so, helping along others and bringing them to the entrance of God's kingdom. They took the blind man and they brought him before the Lord Jesus. Now what's interesting about this particular episode, in contrast with many other times in which Jesus healed, there's something unique both about the manner and the cure And it reminds me a whole lot about our experience in life. The manner in which he cured this blind man is very objectionable at first reading. And it's unique. You don't see it anywhere else in Scripture. There were times when the Lord spoke and the deaf and dumb would instantly... Speak, having never even spoken a word in their language, could speak wonderfully. Amazing. There were times when people lay prostrate. The paralytic man who arose by the words of Christ and immediately walked as if he never, you know, as if he was always capable of walking in full strength and vigor. Amazing. There were times when Jesus spat on the ground and made a little bit of clay, and anointed the eyes of the blind, and they could see immediately. But in this case, what makes it and marks it unique is that the Lord, first, upon healing this man, he could not see clearly. And it appears to some people that Jesus had to do it over again. He made a mistake. He just didn't put forth the effort and had to redo. Because when he... uh, touched the eyes of the blind when, <clears throat> when he had put his hands on them a second time he could see clearly but we know that's not the case is it there's nothing that the Lord does without purpose and, it, and it's obvious to me that there was a whole lot of reasons why the disciples needed to see this for themselves and equally so there's a whole lot of reasons why you and I need to see it Because a lot of God's children, even upon the visual opening up, remember Paul prayed that the eyes of our understanding would be enlightened. That's a prayer for God's people, for people like me. And so often, as I look back in my life, even to this very point, sometimes I just grope along in the darkness. I can't see. And so for us to think that upon... You know, the new birth, for instance, which is instantaneous. 
which is an immediate work, the Holy Spirit, of waking a sinner alive from deadness. We think we just automatically know everything. Well, that's not the case. We see through a glass darkly, and our path shines more and more unto a perfect day. We don't have it all instantaneously. And so in this particular text, as we read it, we will learn that it really pictures more of a progressive, gradual growing in grace as a child of God. And that's why, as Brother Steve and I shared text this morning, that I said something to this. We should never criticize somebody who doesn't see it all. We should thank God for what He does see. Because you and I, we don't see it all either. And the church... We might rub shoulders with brothers and sisters who don't quite see it all as you see it. And how do we deal with that? Well, we thank God and we lead them on to the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the manner in which he did it was very unique. And I'm very thankful for that. Because had the Lord performed this particular miracle the same way in every case, I think mortal man would end up making an idol out of it. And two, it adds to the fact that the Lord Jesus is filled with variation. He was the creator of the universe. There's no mountain that looks the same. There's no valley whose depth measures equal. God is full of variation. You know, there's no sunset that sets in the evening that's the same. It's so beautiful. And here we come along and we want to try to simplify everything and make a cookie pattern out of everything, spiritual or non-spiritual. And that just owes to the weakness and the limitations of who we are by nature. But God is not so. His paths are unsearchable. And His ways are without finding out. You know, it's so beautiful as it reflects on the beauty of God. But this way in which this man was cured, you might find objectionable. Because what he did in this case, he spit on a man's eyes. He just spit on it. It's disgusting, isn't it? The thought. It's disrespectful in some sense. It's totally out of line. He's off the course, if you will. Why did he spit in a man's eyes? Well, I can, you know, imagine a little bit here. You know, there's a lot of times when the gospel, we first heard it, we found it very objectionable. You know, and sometimes the Lord meets us wherever we may be. I don't know this particular man's life, but he did have a disease that I don't think you and I could handle too well. To be blind. I can't think of a worse affliction in life than to be blind. To be in darkness. Not just at night when you're sleeping, but when you're awake. You can't see anything. Not just for a moment or two, but your entire life. Walking around in complete and utter darkness. It must be horrific. And he may have been bitter. Who knows? Maybe he felt a bit disrespectful. Somebody says, well, that could never be with a child of God. And yet we learn in the Bible, you remember when Naomi came back from the land of Moab and she went into her hometown in Judah. Isn't that Naomi? She's back. And yet, you know what she said? Call me no longer Naomi. Call me Mara, meaning bitter. For the Almighty hath dealt bitterly with me. You see, we have experiences that we feel bitter and angry. The bitterness of soul, as Hannah prayed, being barren and without child, being abused verbally for her faith in God. I've known people to object to the doctrine of election at first, but in the long run, it became sweet and a beautiful doctrine as their eyes were opened and they beheld the glory of God. Well, there's a whole lot more here, but let me just read it and give way. Verse 22, Mark chapter 8. Think about this. And he cometh to Bethsaida, and they bring a blind man unto him and besought him to touch him. And he took the blind man by the hand and led him out of town. Isn't that a wonderful blessing 
that God leads his people, a master teacher leading this poor soul away from the crowds in the solitude of a single place maybe. And when he had spit on his eyes, what holy saliva, what a beautiful thing. And put his hands upon him, he asked him if he saw aught. And he looked up and he said, I see men as trees walking. And after that, he put his hands again upon his eyes and made him look up. And he was restored and saw every man clearly. And he sent him away to his house saying, neither go into the town nor tell it to any in the town. May the Lord bless you this morning. Appreciate what Elder Quino's brought forth and ask that you pray as we change the, uh, to the preaching portion following Elder Aquino and ask that you continue to pray. Have you ever heard someone that had an experience describe it as um, they had a come to Jesus moment? I mean, I've heard that uh, term used. And that means it's, a, uh, it's almost a life-changing event or experience that someone has. It might be a moment that brings about a change in someone's life to the point of uh, repentance, how conversion and repentance come into play. It might be a situation that it changes someone and they realize that God is giving them. And I, I don't you don't. I don't I try not to ever use the word chance because I believe that God is working behind the scenes in a miraculous way. But I've heard folks say, well, God gave me a second chance. I believe it could be that God gives us a second or another opportunity. God's not a God of chance. It could be a tremendous experience that is a pivotal point in our life. That God uses to get our attention. Amen. It may be that we need our attention apprehended by God. Want to look at an individual right here who was a believer of Christ, who was a follower of Christ, who experienced a cr- close relationship with Christ. But he experienced what folks might describe today as a come to Jesus moment. Luke chapter 22. Going to talk about one of the disciples named Peter. It describes Peter and God forbid that this would describe us in our life, but I feel like it it very well may. Peter is described in verse 54 that he was a follower of Jesus. But it describes Peter. It says Peter followed Jesus afar off. Have you ever followed Jesus afar off? If we follow Jesus afar off, God may give us and bless us with a come to Jesus experience that brings us closer to him. It might give us another opportunity to be used of the Lord. Now, it's interesting that the disciples had this... um, They were having a conference meeting amongst themselves. And the topic was, who's going to be the greatest in heaven? And who's going to sit the closest to the Lord in heaven? And one mother said, well, would you remember my two sons and give them a front row seat in heaven? Now, every mom would would probably that would go through their mind that they want their children to be right up there in heaven 
and the closest to the Lord. And so as they're debating this position about as they begin to get a glimpse of heaven, even though it was maybe not clear, as they begin to get a glimpse of heaven, they begin to wonder, well, who's going to be the greatest in the kingdom? And so Christ really just cuts through the chase and gets to the bottom line. And he says, you think the one that sits at the table and is served is the greatest in the kingdom. And he says that would look like that that would be the person with the highest position, the highest place, the most respected individual, the one that sits at the head of the table would be the one that gets all the respect. But he said, what role do I feel? He said, I feel the role of being your servant. And he said, he that serves is the greatest in the kingdom. Do you know how to be happy in the Lord? This is just one way. Don't look around and say, well, I want to see how many people can serve me. But you look around and try to find somebody that you can serve. And did you know that it's amazing if you're sad, if you're despondent, if you're discouraged, if you're experiencing despair. It's amazing how if you serve somebody else. Look at ways you can minister and way you can be used of the Lord. It's amazing how God will pull you out of that. It is. He says he that serves is the greatest. So Peter, no doubt Peter loves the Lord. No doubt Peter is a follower of Christ. But no doubt Peter represents us a lot of the time. The conversation goes on. And... In verse 31, it says, the Lord says, Simon, Simon. Now, I don't know about you all, but when it's when it's mentioned twice right here, I believe that he he's calling attention to Peter, to Simon, Peter. And he could have just said Simon. But when he says it twice, it's like when my mother would call me Stephen Wade. That's my middle name. Would she call me that? I knew she meant business. Well, when the Lord said, Simon, Simon, he meant business for Peter to listen up and the folks that were around to listen up as well. And he says, Simon, I'm going to tell you something right here. And he said, I want you to remember this and I want you to hold on to this. And he says, Simon, he says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan hath desired to have you. If you go over to to Peter, it is uh, told us again that Satan goes around as a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour because he delights to have us. I am so thankful that we can rest assured that we're in the hands of the Lord and in the hands of Jesus Christ and Satan cannot pluck us from those hands. But I will tell you, and, and, and God is sovereign and God is in control, that God can, and we have the example of God doing this with Job, God can remove some hedges that are around us by the grace of God and allow Satan to touch either the things uh, around us or uh, our provisions or our health as he did Job, but he could not touch Job's life because God had a hedge of protection about him. God said to, to, to Simon Peter, he says right here, he says, I want you to know Satan desires to have you and Satan desires that he may sift you as wheat. Now, I was blessed to have a wonderful grandmother that was a wonderful cook. And on her kitchen counter, she had a big container that had flour and another one that had sugar. And in this container that had flour, there was an old time flour sifter. I guess that's what you'd call it. And I can remember watching my grandmother turn that flour sifter and out would come this freshly ground flour. And then she'd make a wonderful cake with it. And it was it was 
great. It was wonderful. I don't even know if they still make devices like that anymore or if people still use them, but my grandmother sure did. But when the Lord is telling Peter right here that Satan desires to sift you, it means he desires to stir you up. He desires to stir up your faith in Christ. He desires to stir up your relationship with your parents. He desires to stir you up and to put doubts in your mind and and cause doubts to come into your life. And Satan is desiring to look at your weak points and he is desiring to attack you in those points and draw you away from your fellowship with the Lord. He can't take your eternal salvation, but he certainly can hinder your joy in the Lord. And the Lord says to Peter, Satan desires to have you. He desires to sift you and to stir you up. But he says two things right here. Peter, I'm praying for you. And he says, and Peter, when you experience this sifting of Satan, he says, when thou art converted, strengthen the brethren. So it starts out and gives us some encouragement right here. Have you ever denied the Lord? Gives us encouragement right here that if we've ever denied the Lord, if we've ever forsaken the Lord, that the Lord doesn't write us off. That's right. But he gives us another opportunity. Let's look at this experience right here. Peter said to him, boy, Peter's so zealous. Peter, I mean, Peter probably felt like we feel like after we finished a three-day meeting at Mount Carmel or Cincinnati or uh, Atlanta, Georgia or, or Grace Chapel. I mean, when you leave Grace Chapel, you think, oh, I'm not ever going to have a problem uh, serving the Lord again. I'm, I'm strong in the Lord right now. Peter was feeling that way. He was in the presence of the Lord. And he said, Lord, I'm not going to forsake you. He says, no. He says, in fact, I'm ready to go with you to prison. He says, in fact, Lord, I'm ready to go with you to the point of death. I I will not forsake you, Lord. You ever felt that way? You really, really did feel that way at the time. But it also reminds us of just how frail we are in and of ourselves. And how susceptible and vulnerable we are to the temptations and enticements of Satan. And if it wasn't for God's amazing, restraining grace, we'd be a lot worse off than what we are. Look at what he says right here. The Lord who knew more about Peter. And by the way, he knows more about you than you know about yourself. You think you've got self pretty well figured out? Well, the Lord does. He knows all your thoughts. He knows everything that's going on in your, your brain. He knows, he knows what you're thinking right now. You may be thinking, boy, it's not much longer till 12 o'clock. He knows exactly what you're thinking. He knew more about Peter than Peter knew about himself. Peter said, I'm not going to forsake you. And Peter probably really felt that way when he said it. But he said right here, he said, Peter, I want to tell you. He says, Peter, I tell you, the cock shall not crow this day before thou shalt thrice deny that thou knowest me. Peter had already said, I'm not going to forsake you. I'll go to prison. I'll die on your behalf. And the Lord said, Peter, the cock's going to crow. And before it crows, he says, you're going to deny me three times that you even know me. So let's go through and look at that experience. There's a great experience that there's a tremendous, there's a profound experience that Christ has between Peter denying him uh, of going to the Garden of Gethsemane and and praying to the Lord about the sins of his people and, and, and sweating there. And it says his sweat was, as it were, great drops of blood falling down to the ground. 
And, and, and Christ is there in the garden praying. But then it comes down and, and it says that they apprehended uh, Christ. He was betrayed with a, a, a kiss from Judas. And it, then he comes down. And then it tells us that Peter was following Christ. But he followed Christ. And the description was he followed him afar off. Let me ask you. Do we ever follow Christ afar off? Well, I'd like to be carry the title of a Christian. I'd like to be able to associate in fellowship with Christians. But it's really not my, prior, my top priority in my life. Is the word of God a priority to us? Is the fellowship of the saints a priority to us? Is praying to the Lord Jesus Christ a priority to us? Or do we sometimes find that we get so wrapped up in this world that we find that without really intending to or realizing it, that it might be said that we're following Christ, but we're following afar off. Peter followed Christ and he followed him afar off. And it says there was a distance between him, between Peter and the Lord. And it says, and when they had kindled a fire in the midst of the hall, there were set down together Peter and he sat down among them. And a certain maid beheld him as he sat at the fire. And earnestly looked upon him, this maid looked upon Peter. And Peter's watching what's happening to Christ, but he's doing it at a distance. He's following at a distance, afar off. Can I tell you something? The best place to be in following Christ is as close as we can possibly be to him. We don't need to allow things to separate us from following Christ. Look what happens. She said that Peter sat down among them and this maid said as, 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 as he sat by the fire and earnestly looked upon him and said this maid said to the others that were gathered around those that were apprehending Christ and the opponents of Christ. He says the maid said about this man said this man was also with him. I, I, I've seen I have witnessed that Peter was a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ. And he, Peter, and he denied him saying, woman, I know him not. This is the first account of Peter denying the Lord. And then after a little moment, after a little while, another saw him and said, Thou art also of them. And Peter said, man, I am not. And of the space of about one hour, it said another confidently affirmed saying of a truth. This fellow also was with him for he is a Galilean. And it says that Peter said, man, I know not what thou sayest. And it says, and and immediately he uh, while he yet spake, the cock crew. Now, before we get to that, if you look at one of the other accounts, this account is given in the other Gospels. It says that when Peter was uh, approached the third time about being a follower of Christ and he kept saying, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't know who he is. It says in one of the accounts, the third time when Peter was uh, approached that he was a disciple and a follower of Jesus Christ. It says that Peter began to curse and swear. And his speech betrayeth him. And while Peter was cursing and swearing that I know not the Lord Jesus Christ, all of a sudden the cock crew. If that's the only verse in the scriptures that, uh, that encourages not to curse and swear, 
I'll tell you, I remember the first time I said a curse word. I'm confessing to you. My mother heard me, and I'm thankful now that she did because she took a bar of lava soap and she washed my mouth out. And I thought, you know what? I just don't think it's worth doing that. <laughs> now, probably mothers would be at least rebuked for doing that today, but it worked. But if there was, this was the only verse in the Bible that talked to us about our speech, Peter himself was denying the Lord. And he began to curse and swear. And he says, I do not know him. I am not a follower of him. And then it says something else right here. It says the cock crew. And then look what happens. He said, I know him not. It says, and the cock crew. It says, and then the Lord. So Peter was in the presence of the Lord at a distance. It says, the Lord turned and made eye contact with Peter. You ever had your mom or dad do that? You knew what they were thinking without them even telling you a word. Peter just denied the Lord and he looked, the Lord turned and looked at Peter and made eye contact with Peter. And the Lord would have been justified to say, you have denied me three times and I'm marking you off the slate and you're on your own and you're going to have to fend for yourself from this point on. But I believe that when the Lord looked upon Peter, he did it with a measure of mercy and compassion. Amen. And saying, Peter, you've missed the mark. You've missed it again, Peter. But I still love you. And Peter, you remember what I said? That when you've messed up, Peter, I'm going to give you an opportunity to go and take your experience and encourage somebody else. I'm going to give you an opportunity to go and help somebody else. And Peter, I'm not going to write you off. But I'm still going to use you in serving me. Our God is in the business of giving us second opportunities. Over and over again. And if you're at all like Peter. And you've messed up. And you've denied the Lord. You'll be especially grateful. That we have a Lord. That's merciful. And long suffering. And that gives us another opportunity. To serve him. He doesn't say Peter you've messed up. You've missed the mark. You're not worthy to be used in my kingdom anymore. He says Peter. You go and use your experience to encourage others. You know what happened then? It says Peter went out. And Peter, who had denied the Lord, Peter wept bitterly. You know why Peter wept bitterly? He felt the burden of his sin. And he had a change of heart. Peter had a come to Jesus moment. And it changed his life. Not to say that Peter was perfect from then on. You remember when Peter was concerned after the resurrection about how that... Uh, what John's role was going to be in serving the Lord. And the Lord says, Peter, you worry about yourself and your service to me. Don't you worry about John and the other folks. You worry about your service to me. It didn't perfect all of the personality traits of Peter. And sometimes our personality flaws are not all perfected here in this life. 
But the good news is they're going to ultimately be completely perfected in the world to come. You, Lord could have written Peter off, but that's not how the Lord works. He said, Peter, when you're converted, when you're converted, you go and strengthen the brethren. Remember who it was that was first on the scene when the report came back that the body of Christ is not in the tomb? It was Peter. It says Peter ran to the tomb to see where the body of the Lord Jesus Christ was. And then you can go over into Acts chapter 1 and you can see the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And it was actually Peter that was there after this experience had happened. And then if you go over one more chapter into chapter 2 of the book of Acts, one of the most profound messages that have, that's ever been proclaimed with the blessings of the Holy Spirit in a miraculous way was delivered by Peter himself after Peter denied the Lord. And then you go over to the back of the book and you can find 1 Peter and 2 Peter. And you can find some letters that Peter's written and how that he used his experience to encourage the Lord's people and encourage you to be strengthened in the Lord. The Lord gives us second opportunities here in this life to serve Him. Peter needed a coming to Jesus experience because Peter was following Christ afar off. It ought to be a good warning to us not to follow Christ afar off, but follow Him as closely as we can here in this life. And if we ever find ourselves like Peter, that we've denied the Lord, when the Lord brings us through it, when He changes our heart, when He convicts us, may we use the experience that God allowed us to experience to help somebody else along the way. He said, when you're converted, Peter, you strengthen the brethren. God used Peter after this experience in even more miraculous ways, maybe than he did before the experience. Mm -hmm. And God may use you after your experience, even in greater and more profound ways in serving him. Let's not follow him afar off. Let's follow him as closely as we can. And let's use the experiences that God has blessed us with to help and encourage and strengthen others. May God bless you.